Hello, and welcome to The Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan, and joining me, as always, David Dixon. David, what's up? What's going on, Kelly? It's a great day. Yankees won. Finals are over. Well, we still have a lot of basketball to talk about. Got another guest. He's back for the third time, Max Sass. Coach Sass, how you doing? Great, guys. I'm honored to be the first ever uh, three-peat. We're psyched to have you. So we're going to we're going to have a bunch of things. We got the Anthony Davis trade. The NBA draft is coming up on Thursday, but we got to start up north. Toronto Raptors are your NBA champions. I mean, Kelly, it's almost as if one of us predicted this from, from the beginning. And I just want to thank every member of the Raptors organization for giving me credibility. It was a great series marred by injuries and intrigue and conspiracies but at the end the board man got paid and Kawhi valiantly wins the championship Fred Van Fleet not only is a new father celebrating Father's Day this year for the first time as a father but also for the first time as an NBA champion Kyle Lowry redeems himself with postseason glory I just loved everything about it Kelly David you were right I want to give you credit right now I'm gonna I'm going to clap here silently. No one can see me, but I'm, I'm giving you a round of applause. I'm happy for Kyle Lowry. I'm very happy for the Toronto fans because for the past half decade, they've run into the brick wall that's LeBron James, and they have now been set free. Kawhi Leonard was phenomenal. Listen to this company that he joined. So he has two finals MVPs before he turned 28. The only other people to have done that, Magic Johnson and Tim Duncan, and he's also won two finals MVPs on two different teams. Only players to do that, Kareem and LeBron. So Kawhi Leonard has joined an elite group with his performance in the finals. And I don't even think he was fully healthy, but I was I was thoroughly impressed with the Raptors as a whole, but but in particular Kawhi Leonard, who might be the greatest mercenary in the history of sports. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a little conflicting to be honest, to determine if you want to root for a guy that just gets it done after what happened with the whole Spurs situation and certainly I wasn't there we weren't there so it's hard to speculate but um, I think my biggest takeaway is that with the Raptors winning I can feel a lot more comfortable inviting Drake to Pratt games now um, and not worrying about a curse and I I really think he's going to accept guys I'm excited Uh, but in all seriousness it was really impressive but I'm curious to get your guys takes Um, I was actually rooting for the Warriors in this series because I thought it was important for their legacy. I thought it was important for the way that 20, 30, 40 years from now, we remember this dynasty. Um, I thought the three, you know, the the back-to-back-to-back was important. I thought winning this was important because in 20, 30 years, when we're telling our kids about it, um, we're not going to have that kind of mental... Uh, alert of, oh yeah, KD was hurt. Oh yeah, Clay Thompson was hurt. You know, Alfonso McKinney played all these minutes. It uh, So I'm curious as to you guys think how this affects the legacy of this Warriors dynasty. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that, Coach. And it's really interesting to think about because when you think about the great teams in NBA history, almost all of them have the three-peat. 
Recently, you have the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq. Obviously, Jordan did it twice. That was part of the the legend of Jordan was the two three-peats with the intermission of minor league baseball. And then the the great Celtics teams of the 60s, we, we, we think of the dynasties as three in a row, baseball with the Yankees from 98 to 2000. And, uh, it, you know, it is really interesting to, to think about 20 years from now, how are we going to remember this Warriors team? And, and you know, I don't, I don't really know because I think there's two iterations of the Warriors. So those the first two years without KD and then the last three with KD. And I think that each one is going to have a different memory and a different vibe. And I think that we're going to remember this team maybe not as fondly as you know the team that could have been. I think this will be the team that gets remembered more for the injuries as what could have been if Durant didn't blow out his Achilles and Thompson didn't tear his ACL. I think, David, you hit on pretty much all of the thoughts that I had as it pertains to their legacy and how we'll look back at it from a historical context. But just in the immediate future now with KD and Clay out, is this Warriors team a playoff team next season? Or are they going to struggle in the Western Conference to make the playoffs with basically a nucleus built around Draymond and Steph? No, they're a playoff team. There's no doubt in my mind they're still a playoff team. Um, and I think they're going to go back to the drawing board and just readdress their depth. Because right now their depth is that they have like five different options at the five that eventually when it comes down to crunch time, they decide they don't want to play any of them because they want to go with Draymond there. So I, I think they're going to look back at the guard wing positions um, and, and get a lot more depth there. I think this is still a playoff team. Let's not forget that they're not going to waste Steph Curry's prime years. He is probably one of the two or three best players in the world right now. Um, and, and they're too smart and too savvy and have too good of a coach and too good of an organizational culture uh, to sacrifice that Um when you have the best defensive player in the league and maybe the best offensive player in the league, um, you, you, you figure out ways to build around that. And especially, and I think it's going to be in a new arena, right? Like that's something people want to be a part of. Yeah, and and I think that maybe now, I don't know if we should be talking about legacy yet because I think we have to wait until we see if they actually do leave. Because I think maybe now Durant, in, in the back of his mind, is saying, hey, you know, even though I was planning to leave, I was planning to leave on top after a three-peat, and I can't leave my guys like this. I don't want to go, you know, leave injured as as well. And maybe this makes Durant say, and Thompson and Curry and Green and the whole Hamptons Five and say, let's run it back. And people think that we're vulnerable. People think that we're weak. And let's let's show these show everyone in the NBA that we're still the top dogs. Three out of five years, three out of five championships, making the finals five consecutive years, that is one hell of an accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah. But just kind of go, going back to the Raptors for a second, we always hear these teams, when they come up short, you know, blow it up. If you're not going to win a championship or you're not a championship-level team, let's blow it up, get the best draft capital, and just kind of rebuild. And Masai Ujiri, I think, deserves a lot of credit for he – de- he certainly pivoted and went in a different direction that – I probably wouldn't have gone down firing Dwayne Casey, trading off basically a, an, an icon in Canada in DeMar DeRozan and gambling on Kawhi Leonard. And, and I mean, now, regardless of whether he decides to resign in Toronto or not, this trade was a huge success. So I think for the teams out there right now, like, you know, the Portland's of the world and even Houston and some of these teams that have run into the brick wall that is the Golden State Warriors, 
this is just kind of, you know, an example of we don't necessarily have to blow it up because never really know what's going to happen. And you see Clay and KD go out with these injuries and then all of a sudden Toronto, this is not to say they wouldn't have won without that. This this just really speaks to teams not needing to blow it up. It kind of is an argument for staying good, even if you're not great, right? And But I, I think part of it is, and I'm not Masai Ujiri, so I can't totally get what he was saying, but I think he did see that a team with DeMar DeRozan, who's not the most efficient and current modern NBA player, as your best player, probably had a ceiling that was not where it is right now and even if you don't win the finals this year and Kawhi walks you're starting over anyway as opposed to staying on that kind of average path um but you know I liked your Houston comparison because it sort of in a weird way reminds me of what Daryl Morey did you know however many years ago when he just stayed kind of good enough kept these assets there to make it attractive enough to not only trade for James Harden, but to make him want to come there and feel like there was enough of a culture and, and talent around him and then do it again, trading like Montrezl Harrell and all those guys for, for CP3. It, it, there there kind of is an argument for staying good, right? Like you have to have luck with injuries and, and not to diminish what the Raptors did, but that's how the world works. Like, don't forget a couple years ago, the last time the Warriors played Kawhi, he didn't play because Zaza Pachulia landed under his foot on a jump shot. You know, both sides benefited from injuries. It's just part of the modern NBA. And, and I think the, the, the word you used that was best was, was luck. And if you think about this Raptors run, so they make the trade for... Kawhi, but as you mentioned before, before they do that, they they trade or they fire Casey and hire Nurse, who has no NBA head head coaching experience, and so that's that was a gamble because you don't know if that's going to work out. Then you trade for Kawhi, who coming off an injury plagued year where he didn't play, so either way he still didn't play for a year, and there's all these rumors about will he stay, will he not stay, and as we saw with the Warriors, that can and Kyrie, that can have a huge effect on the team chemistry, not knowing what your best player is going to do, because a lot of times everyone else is asked about it, and then you go through the whole season, you know, no one knew that Pascal Siakam was going to take the leap forward that he did and become really good, so that was an unexpected surprise as well, and then if you think about getting into the deadline, they go get Marcus Saul. That worked out great. You you weren't sure how that was gonna, you, and you know you didn't know how that was gonna go with also having Abaka. Him and Abaka were now battling for the starting position, and you just had to assume that neither one of them cared who started, but that as long as they were committed to winning, and that that's still a risk because you don't know how they're gonna react until they do it. And then I think we're all forgetting that in Game 7 against the Sixers, Kawhi's game-winning shot hit the rim four times. So if that doesn't go and the Sixers win that game, you know we're not talking about Masai Ujiri, genius, or Kawhi Leonard in, in the way that we are as the best player in the world. We could very easily be talking about the process and how Embiid is the next coming of Shaq if he was able to, to win the title and that the process works. So I think we're forgetting just how lucky the Raptors got. Also, with the injury luck that they went up against with Durant being out, except for that those 12 minutes in Game 5, and then Thompson. And the cost of Kevin Durant, when they got when they brought him on, they were sacrificing their depth, right? Yeah. They had to sacrifice guys like Barbosa and Harrison Barnes, and the list goes on. Bogut was gone, and then he came back. 
And, you know, they were gambling that, hey, we're, we're top heavy. Our top is very damn good. And we're going to we're just going to basically gamble that these guys don't get hurt. And for the first two years, they didn't for the most part. And that brought them two championships. And then this past year, it all it all kind of burnt burnt to the ground. And in the finals, we saw with, with Clay and Katie out. So there's definitely luck is, is a part of basketball at, at any level. And this season, the Raptors were the beneficiaries of good luck. And the Warriors, for what seems like the first time in four years, had some bad luck. Yeah, really well said. I, I... I agree with that, and those are the breaks. I mean, um, I don't feel particularly bad, um, though I would have liked, like I said before, for the legacy of the Warriors to be remembered a little bit more clearly and hopefully accurately. The one thing, though, that we'll see going forward is clearly you need luck to go this path of staying good and then making sure that the guy you get, because it seems like it's that one year with you know, the Paul George, Jimmy Butler, and obviously the Kawhi model of getting the guy with that one year left that it won't, you know, mess up your team chemistry and that you could win. You need a lot of luck to do that. But then also to completely bottom out, you're taking a gamble and you need the luck in the lottery odds that it goes your way. And then you need luck that you pick the right guy and, and, and that it all works out, that that you take a, uh, you know, a Dame Lillard at six, like Portland did, you know, they very easily could have taken someone else and would not have anywhere been near the conversation. Like, it's either do you want to try to get, do you, do you think you have a better chance of getting lucky staying good, or do you think you have a better chance of getting lucky being really bad? And I think that we'll see, you know, shout out MIT Sloan Sports Conference. We'll, we'll see what the smartest people in sports say about this. The smartest people, one of the most plugged in people, Adrian Wojnarowski, had his first Woj bomb of the summer. He basically announced the trade that many people, including myself, had thought was coming down the pike for for some time. The Pelicans trade Anthony Davis to the Los Angeles Lakers for Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, and basically control of the Lakers draft through like 2025. (laughs) So, what are you? What are you? Just your initial thoughts on this? Did did New Orleans get a fair return for probably one of the top five players in basketball? I, I think that I, in my mind, whenever these big megastars are traded, my mind always kind of goes back to something Bill Simmons used to talk about. That you know, a player like Anthony Davis is worth a dollar bill, and even if you get four quarters in return, it's not quite the same as the the fullness of the dollar bill, and. So I think that, you know, the they probably got, you know, 85, 90 cents on the dollar in terms of potential. And, and I, I, you know, Brandon Ingram was a second pick in, in the draft, and I still think he can potentially sneak into an all-star game at some point in the right system. Um, but I, I think the draft capital is a great move and a win for the Pelicans. You were, your backs were up against the wall. There was one year left on Davis's contract. He had... No interest in doing anything except playing with his uh, his agent's mutual client, uh, LeBron James, out in L.A. And I think both teams win. I think both teams win. I thought it was a great trade. I liked it for both teams. I'm, you know, when I saw the headline, I was like, okay, finally it happened. Davis to the Lakers is kind of what we're all expecting. But then when you saw the package, I was... I was stunned that the Pelicans got as much as they did, to be honest, because for a team with 
very minimal to maybe zero leverage in any trade negotiations because Davis is saying, I am leaving at the end of next season and I am more than willing to have injuries this year to keep me out as well, uh, that they were able to get three good young players in Ball, uh, Hart, and Ingram and then control of five of the next seven years of Lakers draft picks, including the number four pick this year. I think this was an incredible haul, and David Griffin deserves a lot of credit because we've seen this in recent years, the Jimmy Butler trade, the Paul George trade, the Kawhi trade, even going back to Dwight Howard, these disgruntled superstars, you're never able to get that type of return, albeit Davis is a much better player than Jimmy Butler is, but... The, the fact that they were able to get so much, I think, proves the Lakers' desperation in having to make this type of trade. Well, don't forget the Lakers really recently just got burned by Paul George. Right? Yeah. He said, I'm going to the Lakers, I'm going to L.A., and then, oh, whoops, he happened to really like it in OKC. And I just think that they weren't willing to risk that again. In terms of value, I don't really think the Pelicans could have done much better than this. David, you said David Griffin hit a home run. I totally agree. Especially the dude's backed up into a corner, and now he's going to have Lonzo throwing lobs to Zion and then a defensive backcourt of Lonzo and Drew Holiday. That might be one of the better defensive backcourts in the entire league. So, you know, he's definitely got something good to build around in these draft picks. I mean... Over the next five drafts, you could have every draft pick in the entire league, and you might not find another player like Anthony Davis. So he, he was in a tough spot. But from the Lakers' perspective, I know they just totally depleted their depth. They did hang on to Kyle Kuzma, but Anthony Davis is the best player LeBron will have ever played with. Do you guys disagree with that? I think he probably is the best player because at the time when he started playing with Irving, he wasn't. I mean, maybe Wade, but that might just be I was you know 11 when when that move happened, and I just didn't know that much about Wade. So I, I would say he's probably the best player he's he's played with. I I think I lean towards Dwayne Wade, but I also think you have to consider. I think I saw a graphic on Twitter the other day that this will be the seventh number one overall pick that LeBron has played with, and let's not forget his time spent with Greg Oden in Miami as well. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you you pair AD, you pair LeBron, and then it'll be interesting to see, do they go after a Kemba or a Kyrie, or do they instead try and go after like two of J.J. Redick, Brooke Lopez, and Danny Green and try and round up the roster that way, or do they just go big fish hunting and try and get you know one of these top guns like a Kemba or a Kyrie, and if they're able to land them, given the injury status of the Golden State Warriors, are they suddenly the Western Conference favorites? I think they're definitely in the discussion, right? Yeah, and Jimmy Butler is another name that that people are kind of throwing out there that could be a fit out in L.A. And, of course, the other name that people are throwing out, more so for the Clippers, but now a little bit for the Lakers, too, is Kawhi Leonard. And that would change the way we think about super teams, no? But, you know, I, I personally think that they should not go the superstar method. And I think they should go, as Kelly said, and fill up the roster with, J.J. Redick types and, and role players who could really help them um, because as, as we saw last summer they just missed the boat completely on what to do and maybe they shouldn't go role players because clearly they don't know how to build a team of role players as racing out to go sign JaVale and oh you know let's see if Mike Beasley is, is, 
is available, it's Lance. So maybe they only know how to go get superstars, and that's just what Rob Plinka knows how to do. But I'm in the mindset of it's a lot harder to be that third player than than we all think it is. And especially playing with James and Davis. And I think the players know that too. So I would be surprised now. I, I've said the whole time that I think Irving's going to end up on the Lakers. So maybe I need to adjust that. But I think it's a lot easier to go say, hey, Danny Green, hey, J.J. Redick, come play with us than, than it is to get Kemba Walker with all the proof of, hey, you're going to get blamed for everything that goes wrong. And you'll be the piece that we throw out and trade rumors to make this team better if we ever have a two-game losing streak. And the other thing is, if you are going to build a team around three guys, and two of them are Anthony Davis and Kyrie Irving, who have a long history of injuries, I'm not sure that's the most prudent idea either. Yeah. Well, I, I think what would be really interesting, and one thing we have to consider is, for a long time, Anthony Davis pretty much said, I don't want to play the five, I want to play the four. And that's part of the reason that uh, the Pelicans brought in Boogie Cousins a couple years back. So one thing that would be really interesting to me is if they brought in a guy like Kavon Looney, who's not super high cost, probably a mid-level exception around there type guy, for 82 games he can take the brunt of it, and then all of a sudden you go into the playoffs and he can be your backup five and you can play Davis at the five there when the games really, really matter. Um you know, I think they definitely need shooting. Shooting, and, and those guys are both terrific shooters for their position, uh, and they're so elite that it doesn't even matter if they weren't. But I think if they can find some shooting around them, you guys mentioned J.J. Redick, um, guys like that. But um, even bringing back a Kentavious Caldwell Pope, I, I don't think is the worst idea in the world, depending on you know where he fits in the salary cap. Wait, so the Lakers don't get a salary cap exception for having three clutch guys? <laughs> no comment. But uh, I'm right there with you. They're in a really important spot because they only have, I think, five players under contract, six players under contract. So they have a lot of the roster to fill out. And you're leaving this to Rob Palenka and by all accounts, especially from the Bachelor Holmes article, an organization in disarray. So who knows what's going on behind the scenes? And they, they're just in a really important spot because, yes, you have James. Yes, you have Davis. As Kelly keeps mentioning, Davis has had a lot of injuries. James is getting a lot older. He missed a lot of last season with, with an injury. They need guys who can... Get, help them get through the slog that is and the grind that is the 82-game NBA season. We put so much emphasis on April, May, and June, and we forget that the only way that you play in May is that you have to win the games in January and February. I mean, you give me Anthony Davis and LeBron James, I'll take my chances. But with LeBron, I think this would be, if he's able to compete for, not not just compete, but compete for championships over these next three or four years, and say he gets one or two or three, that would be one hell of a way for him to round out his career. One thing I want to highlight for uh, the Pelicans is, too, is that if Zion is as good as we think he is and think he's going to be, Holiday is already a very good point guard. They have this fourth pick, and they also now have 
so much draft capital from the Lakers that if Zion turns out to be sensational, they have an all-star point guard, they have the, the, the draft assets to make a move and go get maybe the next guy who's unhappy. I, I think it would be really interesting because uh, I think that's a really good point. I, I think it would be really interesting if they kind of, because they're talking about want, potentially wanting to move that fourth pick right now. Um, I know the Hawks, who have 8 and 10, were talking about potentially moving up to 3 with the Knicks. I wonder if the Hawks would swap that for number 4 and give the Pelicans kind of two swings at, you know, a young big guy or, you know, a young 3 and D wing that could complement these guys. Um, Or if you package it with Lonzo, if they don't think LeVar's worth it, to be honest, uh, that could be really interesting as well. Yeah. Or or they'll keep the picks, and Conspiracy Dave has his conspiracy hat on. Uh, you know who was the GM in Cleveland with LeBron? David Griffin. You know who probably brought his kid to go shoot around at the, pra- at the practice facility? LeBron. You know whose kid is potentially an NBA All-Star? LeBron's. You know what year he'll be coming out? 2023 to 2025, where all the picks are. Is, is this an early, early you know, stacking the the chips for a Bronny James move. I'm just saying, if I I think David Griffin is playing, you know, eight dimensional chess. I I think he's making moves for Bronny James before before anyone really knows, you know, before he even plays a varsity game. I think David Griffin's hoping this trade works out and he still has a job in 2022, <laughs> 2023. I mean, the life of an NBA GM right now is not the most stable. Yeah, for sure. But it's it's definitely more stable when you are picking first in the NBA draft as well, and you're about to have Zion Williamson on your team. So in terms of in terms of Zion, we kind of all have an idea of how good he can be if everything turns out according to plan. But everything doesn't always turn out according to plan. What do you think Zion's floor is? If things don't go as well as everyone anticipates, what type of player is he? Isn't he at that point just kind of a in better shape version of his future Pelicans teammate, Julius Randle. Bouncier Julius Randle, but th- that to me is a floor floor. I, I think he's going to be tremendous. I think, especially in this modern game, where he could potentially, you know, evolve into a, a, a mismatch five. I think he'll play the four a lot of times. Shoot, if he really starts stroking it, he's athletic enough. He could play the three at some point down the road. Uh, like, there's just so many crazy lineups that you can potentially envision with him um, that I, I think he's going to be terrific. And, and they finally have a little bit of an infrastructure around him. And a solid defensive player, too. Holiday, uh, Ball, and Zion could be an elite defensive team. And if they had a guy like DeAndre Hunter at number four? Yeah, that would be a serious defensive team. Great defensive team, but I think in the modern NBA you need shooters, and Lonzo Ball can't shoot. Zion Williamson currently can't shoot. Drew Holiday, Brandon Ingram would be your shooters, and I guess DeAndre Hunter could shoot a little bit. But I'm not, I'm not big on, in this age of basketball, building a team defensively, and that's also part of the reason I'm not high on a ton of you know, the centers in this draft, like the Jackson Hayes and a bunch of these guys who are getting talked up a lot. I just think the way basketball is going, if your comp is – like Clint Capella, sure, he's a fine center, 
but in the playoffs you're basically played off the court and I don't know how valuable that is are we sure about that though because Marcus Saul was very playable in the finals and he is a true center but he like Brooke Lopez taught himself how to shoot bingo fair but also just but just this idea of you know you're, you're drafting these guys at, at 19 and you know they they taught themselves how to shoot much later so I I have full faith in that if you know, as long as you know what type of kid you're getting and, and he's a hard worker, you know, Drew Hanlon can teach all these guys how to shoot. I agree. It's their job. Yeah. There's no more class, whether you think it's real or a farce. There's no more practice time limits imposed by the NCAA. This is your job. You wake up in the morning, you go to get better, you practice with your team, and then you go to, you know, get better again after practice, and then you go to sleep and do it all again the next day. There's tons of guys who have done it and reinvented their game. And that's part of the reason that I think Zion's quote-unquote flaw that he's not an elite shooter will, by the end of his first year, if, you know, at latest start of his second year, will not be what we're talking about anymore. And in the AAU generation for a lot of these guys, Zion has never had to take a jump shot in his life until he played against Virginia this year. Until he got to play against the best ACC competition, he never really had to take a jump shot. And so, of course, his jump shot isn't that good because he never had to take game speed reps with it. And I think it's a lot of the same thing. So one of the guys who I really like in this draft is Jackson Hayes. I know Kelly's not that high on him, but Jackson Hayes is so athletic that he's never had to do anything on the court besides dunk or Brandon Clark. You know, like all these guys are, have been so good and so dominant against their high school competition that, of course, they're a little behind on the full roundedness of their games. Not everyone can be as mature as R.J. Barrett. But I'll, like even R.J. Barrett, he just turned 19 literally three days ago. So I think sometimes we forget just how young these kids are. And I think, I mean, we, we understand they're not finished products, but a lot of times we expect them to be, and we think what we're getting with them out of college is what they're going to be as pros. There are so many guys. Look at Russell Westbrook, who have improved drastically from when they got into the league to where they are now. One of the guys I'm, I'm interested in just because of how he was so touted coming out of high school and kind of how he performed in college was Cam Reddish. Just here's a guy who some services had him as the number one player coming out of high school. And then at Duke, it felt like he disappeared at times. And I'm just kind of curious, do you think he's one of those guys who whose game translates better to the NBA level than it did at college? And, and was he kind of overshadowed by RJ and, and Zion? And is that, you know, a problem with him and a, a lack of assertiveness or, or kind of just just what do you see with, with uh, Cam Reddish at the next level? Uh. I don't, I don't think lack of assertiveness is the issue. I'm not sure Cam Reddish will ever be the best player on an NBA team, but I'm actually really high on Cam, and I think he has a chance to be a better pro than he was as a as a dookie. And he, he's he. I'm trying to think of the best comp for him, but he's long. He's what six seven, six eight, and he's probably the best pure scorer in the draft in terms of creating shots and making shots and you know he, he he was a kid who would routinely go for 40 50 in high school and and I think had the potential to do it a lot more in college if not for future New York Nick RJ Barrett um I don't want to say hogging but uh handling the load 
and and you know Zion handling the hype and and I do think he got pushed to the side a little bit no fault of his own I I think he's gonna be a really 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 good NBA player um not sure if he'll ever be an all-star but I think he's got an outside shot it, it feels like, too, also that he walked into a situation at Duke where clearly Zion is this unicorn of an athlete. And then you have Barrett, who I'm sure was difficult to play with a lot of times because I'll say it, he was a ball hawk because his whole life he was by far the best player and never had to pass. So then he's on a team with all these other five stars. I'm sure Barrett's trying to break down his muscle memory on how to play basketball. And I think Reddish doesn't get the credit he deserves from not uh, antagonizing those guys and pushing back and being a disruption for the team. Because I think that if he was more selfish as a player and didn't accept his role as a third guy, I don't know how successful Duke would have been. We, we wish he was more assertive on the court, but I think it was because Reddish was trying to accept the third option role and he just didn't know how to do it because he was 17 years old when he got to campus that's definitely a fair point are there any other guys in particular you want to talk about because i have i have one guy that's just intrigued me because he's just a total mystery in my eyes darius garland played in four games this year at vanderbilt mcdonald's all-american five-star recruit i've heard him compared to Kyrie, and then i watch you know try to watch his game film and he's playing against liberty lighting them up He's like a 6'3 point guard, crazy handle, but he, he's the guy who's rumored to go fourth overall, and that's one of the guys that I'm just kind of most interested in keeping an eye on. I actually like Jarrett Culver in that spot, to be honest. I think Jarrett Culver's probably the fourth best prospect in this draft, and I want to hear your opinion as well, David, because what I want to bounce back to after this is I, I've been thinking a lot about Guys that just end up in really great situations, guys that maybe aren't quite as hyped but are better fits, and they end up in great cultures and winning teams that get picked in the 22 to 29, 30 range. And I think Eric Pascal from Villanova is going to end up getting picked by, you know, the Warriors or someone like that. And it's just going to get to kind of like be that Draymond-esque offensive Swiss Army knife and people are going to go, this dude went to Fordham as a freshman. And there's a bunch of guys like that that are really intriguing in this draft. Um, and, and so I, I've been trying to look a little bit more at fit. And not that I know what exactly is a perfect fit, but there's some guys that might be happy they slip out of the lottery and end up with these playoff teams with established veterans and culture and talent around them. Oh, I mean, 100%. The, the reward for being the uh, top five pick is usually congratulations you're going to dysfunction you know congrats <laughs> you get the kings so <laughs> it's so it's almost you know a catch 22 because you're getting paid a lot of money and it's obviously you worked your whole life to be one of the best players in your draft and get taken high but it's also like maybe i shouldn't have done so well at my workout um but I definitely think Culver is an interesting guy to, to watch for. I think he's still growing, or he was when he was at Texas Tech. I think he provides multi-positional versatility. He's a good defender. So I, I think Culver is a good guy to highlight, especially because he seemingly is the guy teams are targeting at four if the Pels do give up that pick. Pascal, his AU coach was, was my head coach in high school for one year. 
And he was a guy who was pretty skinny in high school and then put on 40 pounds of just muscle mass. And now it looks like he could be an, an action movie star, but he kept all the athleticism. And so he ended up at Fordham because <laughs> in high school, he wasn't as jacked as he was now. If he looked like he did in high school the way he does now, he would have ended up at, at uh, you know Kansas. But he's a guy who can shoot the ball, he plays really hard, can rebound, and is really athletic. The only thing on him is that he's 6'6", so it's going to scare off some teams. But couldn't you see Denver taking him in like the late first round and just being awesome? Just, you know, him, just like, maybe not even like the new Paul Millsap, but but couldn't you see him just being open for Jokic and just catch and shoot threes the way that, I, I forget the guy's name, but he would start some games Corey as Craig? like the, the, the defender. Corey Craig? Yeah, Craig. And you're just like, how is this dude scoring as many points as he is <laughs> in the NBA playoffs? I think that could be Eric Pascal in the right system. I think another one for you to keep an eye on, like in that mid-20s range, He's a dude who, honestly, everyone says, oh, you know, he kind of reminds me of Draymond because everyone feels guilty that they let Draymond slip through the cracks. But Grant Williams is a guy from Tennessee who reminds me so much of Draymond. Like, he yeah. was, a, I think he was a first-team All-American, crazy just defender, plays with such high intensity, crazy versatile offensively and defensively, just like Draymond. His jump shot isn't the most reliable, but when you play that hard and that smart – I, I think your margin for error is great. I think he's a guy who might kind of, you know, slip in the draft, who's, who's picked up, and then we're looking back a couple years from now saying, how did he not go higher? I just imagine both Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield should play for Brad Stevens for the rest of their life. I just think that would be the perfect fit, and they should retire and retire their numbers next to Bill Russell because they're going to be amazing for the Celtics under Brad Stevens. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Kelly, you, I, I don't know if you mentioned uh, uh, Sam Vecchini from, from The Athletic, but he actually wrote an article highlighting Williams. And I think he raised a great point, which is that Williams is a guy who, the way he played at Tennessee and the way Draymond played at Michigan State, it's so hard to evaluate some of these guys when the way that they play in college is not going to be their role in the NBA. So it's almost like you watch all the film, but it's almost useless because it's this isn't what he's going to be doing at, at the next level. So it's ho- so hard to evaluate where you can see some team love Williams at 9 or some team at 29 is the one who, who loves him. So I think that as we keep looking for these guys who fit the positionless basketball at the 6'6 height, like seven foot wingspan guys a lot of these guys aren't playing small ball five in college so i think it's gonna be really hard to evaluate these guys going forward and i think teams are going to take more chances on a guy like grant williams who i love you you guys remember how high i was on tennessee when we were doing all the march madness pots oh i remember i also remember how tremendous some of my predictions were but we don't have to go back to that we don't have to go back yeah yeah, but uh, you know, we we all recognize you got March Madness right, I got the finals right, and we're still waiting for for Kelly's great, you know, clairvoyant triumph. And it might be it's, the, it's coming, it it's coming someday. It's coming someday. Yeah, but uh, I have I have four guys who I want to highlight, and I'll I'll just go quick on them. Brandon Clark, Gonzaga. Uh, he led. I think I think the stat I saw is that he led the country in offensive and defensive efficiency or something like that. Something crazy where he was first in offense and first in defense. And if it wasn't for Zion, he would have had the highest PER of any player in college basketball history. 
like something absurd like that. Uh, so Brandon Clark, 6'11", jumping bean from Gonzaga. I love his game. Uh, Nick Claxton's the guy who's gotten a lot of hype coming out of Georgia. Uh, big dude. I think he's a guy to, to keep an eye on. I really like Cam Johnson from North Carolina, 6'9", shooter, cl- seemingly typical 3 and D guy. Uh, shot, I think, 40% from three, and he was just a gamer. Every single time that they were on national TV playing a really good team, Virginia, Duke, Florida State, he was putting up numbers, you know? Uh, I love Dylan Windler from Belmont. I think he'll have a chance to really surprise some some guys, and, and I know that the comparisons for Windler are going to be, you know, you know all like the tough, scrappy white dudes in in the NBA. I think that's a little unfair because this dude can ball, and he's a lefty. He keeps guys off guard. He can pass and he can really shoot it, and he has great size. So we'll see how he does in, in the summer league, playing a more consistent, really high level type of competition. And and the last guy is this guy Luka Samancic, Samancic from some from I think he's from uh, Serbia or Croatia. Doesn't he just seem like the spur, the classic spur? He was going to be a first-round pick last year, decided not to come out. He's big, all-around international player. Govoni and the Dragsburg guys love him because they love everything international hoops. No one in America cares because his name is Luka Samancic and he didn't go to Duke. But I think this is a guy who, a lot like uh, Kurt Kuruks on the Nets, was a second-round pick. I think he'll be a second-round pick and be playing meaningful minutes for a playoff team this year. Uh, those are those are good shouts. I like those. I think, you know, I mentioned Eric Pascal before. I, I think a couple other guys that really stand out to me that could be going later in the draft are Ty Jerome. I mean, you talk about a guy who just fits the modern NBA. He can really make shots. Um, he obviously knows how to win. I think he's going to be... Um, Terrific. I really do. Um, what do you guys think? I'm, I'm curious as to what you guys think. Do you think his game translates from Virginia, or is he kind of one of those guys, like David mentioned before, that are going to be a totally different player uh, at, at the next level than they were in college just because of the way the offense worked? I think his comparison, and maybe it's easy because the guy also played at Virginia, but he had a very or has had a very successful career, is Malcolm Brogdon, kind of an older guard. And their games are, are similar in a sense. You know, both heady guys can shoot it a little bit. Malcolm's definitely a little more athletic. I, I, I like Ty Jerome, and at the end of the first round, I think he's definitely worth a shot. I'm, I'm shocked no one's brought up Bull Bull yet. The son of Minute, 7'2", 235 pounds, probably soaking wet. The dude looks like a twig. He, he only played in nine games, and then he got hurt, but he was shooting over 50% from three on three attempts per game so the dude can shoot it and at his size the way the game is kind of going in the lottery i'm looking for guys that have high ceilings and i'm willing to take on some risk when the upside is that high so i mean a couple years ago when thon maker i think went 10th overall everyone was like wow what is going on like this came out of nowhere i wouldn't be shocked if bowl bowl goes top 10 top eight maybe because right now, I mean, the, the the draft is after you get past four or five, not that it falls off of a cliff, but some of these guys have their their ceilings aren't as, as high. So I think some somebody might be looking to take a shot on a guy. And I think 
someone to look at there would be Bol Bol. I think that's a good one too. I think his teammate Louis King uh, from Oregon is a really interesting one. Um, one guy that I would be remiss not to highlight um, is Justin Wright Foreman of Hofstra University. He is an absolute superstar who didn't get a chance to play a ton on the national television stage, but he is a small lefty scoring guard who I believe finished second or third in the country in scoring at like 28 points per game this year uh, for a Hofstra team that won the regular season in the CAA and ended up going to the NIT. Um, He won the MVP of the Dos Equis 3x3 U tournament at the Final Four. He was ridiculously good, and he just shows a really good feel for the game, guys. Like, ultimately in the NBA, you have to be able to create your own shot. He can. For a small guy, he can actually finish at the rim okay, and he really plays well out of the pick and roll. He's going to be a good bench scorer for somebody, and I hope it's someone local so I can go see him play a bunch, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the the two guys you've highlighted, Coach, are I think all the questions about them are if they can guard anyone and yeah. who they can guard because I think that's the biggest thing about Jerome is outside of the the pack line Tony Bennett system, who can he guard one-on-one in space? And then the same thing for Foreman just because he's not that big. I think those are the main questions, but if they can prove it, they'll be great role players each. And then Kelly, about Bull Bull, Something's weird is going on with, with him because he gained a lot of weight when he was at Oregon. And then as soon as he had the surgery, he's like apparently lost all the weight now. And so something weird is, is, is going on with him. And just it doesn't make any sense. I'm giving one more guy because I think that's a really good point, David, but I don't have an answer. So instead of giving you an answer that I would be making up. I'm going to ask you what you guys think of Cabin Gelly from Florida State. He's obviously got really good bloodlines. I believe he's the nephew of Dikembe Mutombo. I think he was the leading scorer for Florida State this year on a really good no, team. No, no, no. <laughs> he's 6'10". He can obviously guard the rim, but he can really step out and shoot the three as well. I think he's the kind of versatile forward that that you know is gonna go behind the Jackson Hayes and guys like that but will end up having a much more impactful career especially early on all right let's wrap it up with this one bold prediction each David go bold prediction the Knicks will not select RJ Barrett whether through trade or stupidity they will not select RJ Barrett all right I'll give you one if Sass you kind of already alluded to it I think the Hawks are gonna trade eight and ten to Cleveland for number five. I think with the fifth pick, they're going to take Jarrett Culver and they're going to place him next to John Collins and Trey Young. And they got a nice little trio there to go along with Kevin Herter. So I'm going to say that Bruno Fernando ends up sneaking into the lottery and it's going to be a tremendous pick, tremendous value. Wow. Are we going to see uh, Woj? Dust off the old th- the thesaurus again this year, as <laughs> as he won't be allowed to say that the team will select. So, uh, team are infatuated by and he's too competitive. <laughs> Shams was taking his beat last year, and Woj was gonna let it go, and then he just couldn't let it slide. So, so Woj broke out the thesaurus, and uh, he used just about every idiom under the sun. 
my favorite one was uh, I forget what team it was, but they are tantalized by this player. <laughs> Actually, guys, I'm I'm gonna hop in. I'm gonna give you my my actual uh, 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 a, a sort of surprising prediction. I'm gonna say that Darius Baisley, his internship at New Balance does not pay off, and he ends up <laughs> not getting drafted. Wow. Well. I don't know if, if new. I, I don't know if he has the qualifications to keep working at at New Balance. Then, <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Five stars would be much appreciated. If you have any feedback for the show, good, bad, or indifferent, please send us an email. Our email account is double double four zero two at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. Our handle is DBL underscore DBL podcast. Thank you for listening. Take care and make it a great day.